0: We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML.
1: Hey, it's Hamilton today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the new Zoom, Dave Woodard. You know what? Sometimes it's better to just shut up and introduce the
2: host. Here's <laughs> Scott Thompson. Will the judges accept that? Are the judges gonna accept that? What are they what are they ju- Yes, the judges will accept that. Hey, what the heck? Why not? Uh good afternoon. It is nine hundred CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Welcome to Hamilton today. Love to have you here. Uh playing the Rod Stewart, because Rod Stewart is number forty nine on Rolling Stone's Top 200 Singers of All Time. So I'm thinking once we hit 50, we pack this in, right, folks? We keep going. Because if I'd known that we were going to play all 50, I would have started at 50 and then got to number one. But the whole story started with uh, nobody was even talking about who was in the top 10. All we were talking about was that Celine Dion wasn't on the list. So then we thought we'd be, you know, better pay attention to the top 10 and started highlighting them. Little did we know it was... So maybe what we'll do is we'll play the whole 200, but I'll start with 200 and go backwards, maybe 250. Or, or is, is it too late for that? Is it too late for that to say that? Yes, the judges say it's too late for that. All right. And the judges all say, get rid of the damn horn. Uh, what else? Oh, freezing rain. We got kind of a weird, uh, man, the weather's just been a roller coaster, hasn't it? Uh, anyway, uh, looks like, uh, rain, uh, coming in later on this afternoon and evening turning into freezing rain. So there's been a warning for that in the Hamilton area. So be aware if you are traveling out and about tonight, it's, uh, it's, it's going to freeze over. Uh, what else we got? Oh, um, the whole John Tory thing—that's all put to bed now. Uh, I lose the bet eh. and. <laughs> and he resigns on Friday, and we'll see what happens uh, after that. Speaking of Toronto, man, uh, a terrible story. Uh, another uh, an, another shooting in Toronto, a school shooting this time at Weston Collegiate Institute, uh, a person taken to hospital in serious condition. Uh, that's about all we know uh, as the school's in lockdown, so continually uh, following that story as well. Also, RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky, who's uh, had her own... Uh, I guess, um, um, conflict in some way or another, whether it's the Nova Scotia shooting, uh, whether it was the uh, handling of the convoy or such, um, you know, it it seems that it's been a a term of turmoil, uh, and uh, Brenda Lucky is uh, resigning. Here's Global News' David Aiken and what he had to say about this.
3: When she took the job as Canada's top cop in 2018, Brenda Lucky was making history. The first full-time female commissioner of Canada's 149-year-old National Police Force. It was a historic appointment. Uh, We have served through through some very challenging times uh, together and I, I appreciate even more her service. Her five-year term was set to expire this year, but sources tell Global News it was unlikely to be renewed after she and the force came under fire in recent years. After the mass shooting in Nova Scotia in 2020, Lucky was accused of political interference for allegedly pressuring staff to release information about the shooter's firearms at the request of her political masters, which announced gun control legislation days later.
4: Was there pressure for information from the federal government about this incident? Yes. This wasn't surprising as we were dealing with the biggest mass shooting incident in our country.
3: Then, last fall, during the public inquiry into the government's use of the Emergencies Act in response to the Freedom Convoy, evidence emerged that Lucky did not provide Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the Cabinet with all of the intelligence about the convoy that she was getting from other police agencies. But Lucky, in her statement Wednesday, looks back on her five years at the top of the RCMP with a sense of accomplishment. She says she leaves the force well-placed in a position to shine in its 150th year. David Aiken, Global News, Ottawa.
2: Wow, 150 years for the RCMP. Anyway, that's the uh, latest from uh, Brenda Lucky, Commissioner for the RCMP, who is uh, stepping down. And, of course, if you uh, didn't hear the news earlier on, uh, the Mayor of Toronto also resigning as of this Friday, once the uh, budget stuff is all firmed up and such. All right, uh, coming up on the show, over the course of the afternoon, uh, the Toronto Auto Show is returning, and it's uh, got a big focus on electric vehicles, and it's also a lot smaller than what it has been in previous years. We'll find out the reason for that. Uh, get the blowback in the fallout of what's happening from the mayor in uh, in Toronto and such. Also, the Canada uh, Canada's cannabis industry is in trouble. We'll talk about that, which was once a goldmine. Uh, now people are having second thoughts. Also, executives with the Halton District School Board say they're closer to a policy regarding what teachers can wear on the job, and we know the ongoing story there. We'll give you an update and tell you what's happening uh, there as well. And also... I don't know if you saw this uh, yesterday but um, in Buffalo New York uh, a 19 year old was uh, convicted of killing 10 people in a grocery store it was just a bizarre scenario to watch uh, in regard to the sentencing and such the family there for uh, victim impact statements and such and then there's this teenage kid just you know it's bizarre you just cannot explain it so we'll talk about uh, talk to Buffalo and how they are coping with all of that uh, today, uh, the day after. Also, uh, the ethics commissioner is, uh, <laughs> well started, first the resigning, uh, the, eth- the, the ethics commissioner is resigning, I believe, due uh, for health reasons and such, but had issued uh, a statement a week or so ago saying, you know, we really need to have some sort of course to um, get everybody in line and, um, and make sure that everybody's aware of what's going on. And now is talking that, you know, there's just too much stuff happening now. Uh, we really got to get a handle on this and what everybody can uh and can't do so we're going to talk about that the auto show is starting this weekend in toronto the toronto auto show has been uh, obviously on hold for a while due to the global pandemic it is back now a bit smaller but ticket sales are brisk let's bring in lorraine sommerfeld columnist with driving.ca and the hamilton spectator she uh she is with us now lorraine thanks for the time i hope you're doing well
5: I'm good. How are you guys?
2: So far, so good. So tell us about this year's edition of, we hear it smaller, there's less manufacturers, but we hear ticket sales are pretty brisk for this. So first of all, why the reduction in manufacturers?
5: Um, we've seen this across most of the North American auto shows, actually globally. And it costs a lot of money to be at an auto show. It can hmm. be like a million bucks, depending on how big you are. And the other thing is, with all the shortages, people don't have the stock Manufacturers don't have right. as much stock, and to be absolutely cynical, they're selling everything they can get their hands on. So <laughs> it's it's not at like the, they're fighting.
2: <laughs> at the at the end of the day, so this is there's no sense advertising to sell cars if we're selling everything that we have.
5: Well, I mean, and again, that sounds really cynical because we everyone does want to see the new stuff. But you've got Ford and Honda, you've got huge manufacturers, not showing up for some of the yeah. shows and JLR like Jaguar and Land Rover they've they bailed you know years ago but yeah. after 2 years of you know dark stages it's back and you just kind of have to wonder. Everything they can get their hands on, they're selling before they even get it. So if they can give it a miss and save a bunch of money, I don't think that makes bad economic sense.
2: <laughs> you know that you know there's a shortage of product when you look in the car at the auto show and there's a kid seat in the back. You know, I mean, some some poor sales guys had to give his up for exactly. the week. You know? <laughs> so um, so does this say? Is this just about? And many people say after global pandemic and, and or things like this, world events, habits change. Um, is that? Can we blame this on? Well, I'm, I guess there's a few things. Number one, the supply, uh, the chip supply, and obviously the transition to electric vehicles. Is that? Is this a trend, or will we see this bounce back once? the industry shifts a bit.
5: Well, I think you've nailed it with both sides of this, what you just said, because EVs are where everything's going. And this show is exploding with EVs and the tech. It's an awesome chance to go learn about this stuff all in one place. There's so many booths, Electric City, they've got all this stuff and people to help you. And a lot of them, they're not people selling you cars. They're explaining, you know, how an EV will fit in your life or not. They'll tell you if it won't. So it's a time to go ask a lot of questions and find out stuff. And the cool thing about EVs, they have no emissions, so they've got a seventy thousand square foot test track and nineteen EVs. You can go for two laps. You can test them right there, and it's inside because they have no emissions. So that's kind of a cool. You can never do that before. You couldn't test a car at the car.
2: Wow, <laughs> that's, that is pretty <laughs> so, cool. Almost sounds like a radio-controlled car thing here, yeah, or go-karts or whatever. We, well, uh, so uh, are we going to see this jump back? As soon as all of these manufacturers are finally equipped with what they need, especially when it comes to EV, because like you said, there's going to be a lot of curious people wanting to know what this is all about.
5: I think this is the next evolution in car shows and we've heard a few hmm. times that it's the death now. This is the 50th year. If you went back yeah. to 74, the difference between this year and 50 years ago, I mean, it's an evolution. It's always changing. I've heard it's going to be gone. People love car shows. If they love them, they love them and they go and they take the kids and it's a whole day thing. They make me a little squeaky, like, you know, cause there's lots and lots of people, but, um, no, I, I can't see them disappearing. We're seeing now that the changes in the industry are going to be reflected on the floor. And that means people can go and find out the new stuff that's going on. And as always, a car show is a very cool place to see everything all under yeah. one roof at once. You can't get that anywhere else. So
2: no, it is very cool for that. So uh, the Fords, the Hondas, uh, Audi, uh, are they all coming back uh, next year? Have they said that or have they just mum uh, for now? I,
5: I don't know. We saw people bail at the Calgary show. It was it Calgary, Edmonton. They didn't even bother having the show because they couldn't get the right. manufacturers together. So again, uh, no one's going to stay out of this huge race into the next generation of vehicles, but they're also going to have to do it when it makes sense uh, financially and when they have... Product, you you can't get people all excited and go awesome. We'll see you in eight months when your car comes in, or two years.
2: That just shows you how bad the shortage is. If they're not putting anything in a car show, I mean that's there's a there's a it doesn't get any bigger than that. Um, so when do you anticipate that this industry will stabilize? I mean this is is this still like another couple of years away before you can go in one day and actually get what you want within a certain period of well, time?
5: I think as we as things transition over into EVs, you've got uh, fewer models than you used to. Right. And so people all want the RAV Prime, and it's a two-year wait. They won't even take your money to put yeah. you on wait list for it. So as long as everyone's lining up in front of the same vehicle, there's going to be a massive wait. So I think we're going to see things kind of equal out as more, more and more uh, vehicles come on the market, more and more types, and especially hopefully smaller ones – people will start to disperse and they'll go to the different parts of the industry and they'll get their hands on the cars that fit their life best. And I think it will settle down. Right now, everyone's running into the same door and it's like a jam.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We talked last time we chatted, we chatted about car theft. Is is, is there any signs or, or because EVs are in such demand that they're being snagged?
5: Um, usually they're hooked up to a house.
2: Yeah. (laughs) So so you drive away and you, you (laughs) drive away and you drag the garage, just like in the cartoons.
5: I (laughs) mean, I'm sure it's very, very hard to steal a Tesla. People will try and do it, but you have to remember, especially EVs, these things are just computers and the computer goes, uh, you're not driving away with me and shuts all the parts down. So they do act differently. You know, in some respects, and we're putting a lot of those theft deterrents into current cars. But uh, EVs, whenever I talk to the cops or anyone, they go, basically, they're always hooked up to someone's house, or they're in a garage. And <laughs> good good point. Good one thing. Can't yeah. see, can't
2: get it. <laughs> good point. Lorraine Sommerfeld with us, columnist with driving.ca. You can read her in the Hamilton Spectator, talking about the Toronto Auto Show starting this weekend. Always fun, Lorraine. Thanks for the time. Be well.
0: You too. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: All right. uh, As we've talked about at length since this all went down, uh, John Tory, the mayor of Toronto, uh, 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 budget um, uh, stuff yesterday and meetings and protests and all kinds of circus-like things and then announced uh, last night that after this was all over and the dust settles that he is resigning uh, at the end of day on Friday. So it looks like it is absolutely Absolutely official. He is uh, uh, resigning as of Friday. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert and is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well
1: i certainly am and the plot continues to thicken scott
2: well is it see because i'm thinking now i lost the bet Alyssa. i lost it because i I was convinced he was going to run again i and then when all of a sudden this delay i thought wow he's not even going to leave so i lost the bet here and if it's a personal thing i mean obviously he's not going to come back but i thought there might be enough uh, sway to change this your thoughts as a pr expert
1: Well, let me first say something that has nothing to do with PR, but probably drove uh, a lot of his decision, John John Tory's decision making. And it is this, Scott. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. So (laughs) I think that if John Tory wanted to keep walking back into his condo and live a life with his wife and his children and his grandchildren, the ultimatum was... I, I'm not even like the ultimate it was either you quit and start rebuilding the, your or your life with us or you don't. So yeah. now you have to choose. And I'm sure that his family has supported him all throughout his corporate career, all throughout his political career. But this is the line in the sand. So honestly... From does this have any PR involved in it? Sure, it does. Optics, yes. John Tory cared enough about the city to make sure that the budget went through and that things would continue at pace and that transition would happen in a seamless and hopefully seamless way. But really, Scott, what drove this, I think, is what was happening at home.
2: Good point. I think uh, many would agree with that uh, over time. Um, that being said, um, he many questioned whether he should, and there was lots of debates over ethics, this, that, and the other. Obviously, um, the, the complicating issue here was it was somebody who worked for him. It was a staffer. Uh, he was the superior there. Um, but does this raise, you know, I know there's a lot of crap here, but in any way does this raise the bar? Here's what you do when this happens. You know, uh, many are saying, you know, even if he could have got back in, this would have been a massive destruction or distraction rather. Uh, does this raise the bar? Hey, if you have this level of, uh, um, whatever you want to call it, uh, misjudgment, you're going to step down. You know, I'm thinking, of course, cause you, you know, the way I am, um, if the prime minister was to be accused of the same thing hypothetically, of course, in his own staff, in his own prime minister's office, Would he step down? Would he apologize? Does this raise the bar in any way after it's been dropped?
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I think that there, there, these situations have a lot of different extenuating circumstances um you know do i think the prime minister would step down well he's been accused of even more egregious things than that and he hasn't stepped down so yeah, yeah. uh i i i think that when it comes to john tory i think that he just felt that i think i, I think that he just felt that this was his time to go and has it raised the bar uh, you know listen I remember when my daughter was a camp counselor and there was something that there was a rule. It was called CSR, camper-staff relationship. And you weren't allowed to have one because (laughs) it might impair your judgment on how you would deal with your direct report and also the kids that are under their care. So it starts really young, Scott. And most companies say, listen, you know, most companies, you have to report that you are having uh, that if you are together with somebody or else you keep it such on the down low until one person leaves and, you know, then you carry on. So does it raise the bar? I think that they're already There always has been a bar. I think there's it always has been a high bar, but like everything else, people try to, you know, wiggle underneath it every now and then to see, you know, Hmm. how far they can push it. I'm not even sure John Tory wanted to get this out. I think that this was something that was leaked externally. And obviously he had to deal with it because it wasn't by him, obviously, and it wasn't by the person that he was having the affair with. I think that there always has to be some set of decorum in the workplace because if you are working for that person and you know that they're having a relationship, let's say with somebody on your team, how does that affect your career? How does it affect your promotions? How does it affect the way you work day to day? So, really, I mean, there's always been a bar. We just got to stop shaking it for heaven's sakes and just, (laughs) you know, get, you know, keep your. Mind on the business at hand, okay? And not what is walking around in the other office.
2: And keep your hands where we can see them. Um, Honest
1: to goodness, I was trying to come up with something so clever about that, Scott, but I'm glad you said it. So, uh,
2: obviously, this, this time has come and gone. Uh, now the question is who replaces him. I don't know who the candidates are. I don't know anything about that. I'm in Hamilton. That being said, what I do know is this guy came with a mountain of experience. Experience and a mountain of, uh, of managerial experience. And I'm not sure we've seen a politician like that in a while. How are you feeling moving forward with this?
1: I think that we have seen as a constituency, we have seen what happens when you put people in that have experience and that way you put people in whose intentions are good but have no idea how the machinery of a government works. And I think that yeah. even when you get down to the municipal level, I think it's even more complicated than it might be, um, you know, on the provincial level or even the, the federal level. So – I would absolutely vote for somebody with experience. I remember, you know, in the recent election for the uh, mayor of Vaughn, there was some guy who just wanted to, you know, st- start government fresh. And these are all the things that I want to do. And I'm reading his pamphlet and I'm thinking, no, you have no idea how all this works. You have all this pie in the sky idea. And really, you know, if you don't know how to create the deals, work with the committees and get around the machinery, nothing is going to happen. we're just going to have some sort of glad handing guy who's, you know, looking for, you know, photo ops. I mean, I live in Vaughn, but, you know, if I was a Torontonian, I would want to kind of have somebody with a mountain of experience. Everybody says that they want to do something different. But really, you've got to work within the system. And if you don't know how the system works, it's going to be a long haul. So,
2: uh, you know, there's been a couple of terms under this uh, mayor and and pretty stable for the most part. Um, do others in council, because it's been shrunk now, do they learn from this experience or does it just go back to a free for all?
1: No, I think that they do learn from this experience. I mean, listen, you know, history always repeats itself, Scott. Is, do we, are we ever going to see something like this again? Yeah, of course we will. Do people think that they're. You know, they can outwit the press or outwit the law. Sure, they do all the time. Um, do I think, I think that the councillors are going to start to see this as, you know, maybe this is a better way to push some of our more progressive agenda. Um, I think what worries me with a lot of this is that there was the, there are these strong mayor, mayoral powers. So we kind of knew what we were getting when it came to strong mayoral powers in the city of Toronto, because it was John Tory and now it's going to be somebody else. So when you think of somebody having all that power who can veto a decision because he or she doesn't like it, you know, gosh, you know, you want to be careful on who you vote in.
2: Good point. Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert on the saga of Toronto Mayor John Tory. As always, Alyssa,
1: thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900
2: We remember when uh, cannabis was uh, legalized way back when. It's been a long time now. Um... 2017 18 uh and many jumped on board thinking this is a gold rush uh but now we hear the industry is in trouble and shrinking let's bring in dr michael armstrong associate professor goodman school of business brock university is with us now michael thanks for the time hope you're well Thank you for inviting me, Scott. Michael, we've talked about this uh, many times over the course of this journey and such, as I mentioned at the Preamble and we've talked before about, it was you know, considered to be a gold rush. Is this just a, a, a case of too many players and not enough customers? What's the issue here?
6: That's uh, certainly one of the core issues. It's, uh, to some extent, a kind of a classic boom and bust. We went uh, back in 2018, almost four and a half years ago, we we had went from zero stores. And we, of course, in Ontario, we had the six month delay. Uh, We got our first stores early 2019. Uh, Those first uh, 25 or so stores, a lot of them did make a killing. Uh, Some of them were doing over a million dollars of sales per month. Uh, But once the licensing process opened up in 2020, uh, we started getting more and more stores. And eventually, uh, some places started to get saturated. They started having to compete with each other. That drove down prices, which cut down profit margins. And so uh, for the last year or so, uh, the retail side has been struggling a bit more. Uh, and much like the producers, they've been struggling actually for uh, close to three years. Too many, too much production, not enough uh, sales.
2: Uh, did anybody see this coming, Michael? <laughs> I'd, I'd like to say I did, but no. <laughs> um,
6: I mean, to some extent... Uh, We knew that more greenhouses were being built, more buildings were converted than really were likely to be necessary. Um, Some of that was, uh, you might just say, simple optimism. The producers thought, okay, I'm going to get a big slice of this pie. Uh, And then reality set in and said, well, you know, actually the black market kept a bigger chunk than we thought. And, oh, gee, I've got a lot more competitors than I thought. My slice of the pie is is, uh, not as big and I've got too many greenhouses, I better cut back. Um, now that is the source of most of the layoffs on the production side, just too much capacity. Uh, but another issue has been, uh, government taxation of the cannabis industry. A lot of it is based on kind of flat rate taxes, not relative to what the companies are actually making as profit. So even though Mm. the companies, a lot of them are struggling, uh, the government is collecting its excise tax uh similarly we in ontario we have the ontario cannabis store which is a monopoly wholesaler all the cannabis has to flow through from the producers to retailers through them and uh their margin profit margin uh has let them make a good profit but um, not necessarily uh appropriate given how the retailers and producers are doing so
2: so the growers now are going to government for help uh what, what what is the ask what's the solution here
6: Oh, well, they're asking for many things. Um, So one of the things that uh, industry has asked for, and we're actually going to get, is at the provincial level. The Ontario Canada store announced this week that they they have reviewed their pricing policy and decided to change it. So what they're going to switch, not until September, unfortunately, but they're going to change two things. So first of all, they're going to go to a flat rate markup. So right now they've been running like a business and say, okay, we can charge a high markup on things that sell well, let's we'll charge a lower markup on kind of the value price stuff. Um, that would be fine if they were a business, but because they're a monopoly, uh, that's really too much control, uh, too much influence on all the businesses and what can sell. So what they're gonna change to is just, okay, they're gonna have a flat percentage, you know, on, on dry cannabis, they'll charge this much of a markup. Uh, and you know, on gummies, they're gonna charge a different markup percentage. So that kind of leaves them just as a neutral, they're gonna collect money to cover their costs. And it's more up to the market, the producers and retailers now decide what products to push and what ones not. The second thing they're changing is they're gonna reduce the size of those overall markups on average. So that would leave more of the uh, revenue available for the retailers and producers to cover their costs. How that will actually end up
2: helping either
6: the producers retailers Uh, that's going to depend on how the market operates so it remains to be seen Uh,
2: one of the main factors uh, of selling this way back when was it was going to put a dent or rid the black market Uh, what is what is the effect been What has the impact been on the black market
6: well it certainly put a big dent Uh, it certainly has not eliminated it and where in between those two extremes we're at is difficult to tell there's there's not a lot of good, uh, accurate estimates or reliable estimates of how big the, the illicit market is. It'd be safe to say they've, they've been cut at least in half. They've lost at least half of their sales, um, probably not three quarters. So somewhere in that range. So, you know, by any industry standard, that's a huge drop, but they, they have not disappeared. So we've made progress, but um, they're still around.
2: What, what do you anticipate in the next year or so? What is the short-term uh, prediction here?
6: Well, I think the industry is going to keep struggling in the short term. Um, at the production level, You know, we saw more layoffs just, uh, what was it, a week ago? Canopy Growth announced uh, some shutdowns at its main um, Tweed facility in Smith Falls, uh, which was kind of its flagship facility. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're likely we'll see... Um, more retail stores, if not close, at least uh, merge or get taken over. Uh, we've In Ontario, we've seen more stores open every month, uh, month after month, up until last summer. And now we've kind of plateaued on the store numbers. There's still new ones opening, but they're being matched by ones closing. Uh, so we're the retail side is kind of looking to figure out where the stability is there. Uh, we're going to see a little bit of... Uh, Revenue opening up because, as I said, the OCS is cutting back its margins. That will help a bit. Uh, At the federal level, the industry would really like to see a drop in the excise taxes. Because, again, right now, those are kind of a flat rate, regardless of whether the industry makes a profit. They'd like to see more of a flexible rate uh, that would account for whether or not they're actually earning money. Mm, That might happen. It's hard to say what the federal politicians are going to do.
2: Dr. Michael Armstrong with us, associate professor Goodman School of Business, Brock University, Canada's Cannabis Industry, and where it is right now. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. All right, let me read you some stuff here. Executives with the Halton District School Board say that they are closer to a policy regarding what teachers can wear on the job. In a meeting on Wednesday night, the board revealed a few, de- a few details of what a forthcoming dress code will look like. This is for the teachers, but insisted a new policy is on track and a draft should be ready by March 1st. The professionalism policy outlining requirements to maintain standards of dress and decorum in the classroom, again, teachers, not students, is an answer to an ongoing matter at an Oakville high school spurred on by a teacher who made international headlines for wearing uh, large prosthetic breasts to class, tight skirt, you know the story. Uh, We received this statement from Rishu Bandu, who is a lawyer for a group of parents um, trying to address the Halton District School Board on this. And they say the Halton District School Board uh, confirmed yesterday that it is still developing some kind of professionalism and decorum policy for its staff. It intends to solicit the views of every school council in each of its jurisdictions, Before finalizing its policy for application at some point in the future. In the meantime, this teacher continues to teach in a hypersexualized attire the parents don't believe is protected under the human rights ground of gender expression. The Halton District School Board is effectively doing nothing to address the situation. Its development of a policy is nothing more than window dressing and a waste of its resources. It is embarking on an unnecessary extensive consultation uh, process with every school in its jurisdiction towards that end. All all that the Halton District School Board needed to do and still do is confirm that the values and beliefs reflected in the student dress code must also apply to teachers. That policy already is applied, given the legal duties of teachers, and it just needed to be affirmed. To talk more about all of this, Larry DeAnne, former mayor of Hamilton and former principal of the school in question, and he is with us now. Larry, uh, are, you, are you glad you're not a principal anymore?
7: Well, I'm certainly glad that uh, I don't have to handle this issue because I'm afraid I would uh, cut to the quick a lot more um, efficiently than uh, than, uh, the bureaucracy seems to be doing. Uh, in the school board.
2: Let me ask you this question, Larry. If you know, and I'm not saying anything. I don't know anything about this. But if you were the principal or the vice principal, and you were saying, "Hey, you know what? I want action on this." Would that speed things up, or would you be just sold the same thing that everyone else is?
7: Well, no. I think the uh, the, the the issue squarely lies um, in the jurisdiction of the board, and yeah. so they need to be taking some action on that at the individual school level. Um, I would have done whatever I could to uh, to uh, to address the situation, uh, but would have been quickly overruled by uh, the school board that sets the policies. Right, as as it should be. It, however, I, I just cannot understand why, um, when a simple, um, practical solution here, which essentially says you can't come to school, looking farcical, isn't the policy. That's it. That's the policy. Uh, and this has nothing to do with gender, it has absolutely nothing to do with with the support as there should be for people who are trans. Uh, it simply has something to do with good taste. And anybody who, who, who looks at the individual uh, in question here and the attire would quickly come to the same conclusion that this is not appropriate. And so that's what the policy should be. Now, there are politics and there are legalities around that. And they can be sorted out. They can be sorted out in, in a court of uh, of law, perhaps, if that needs to be the case, or um, within the political circles, as they set policies, uh, and, and that's fine. But the immediate action that should have been taken at the school level is to say to this individual here's a proper dress code uh, if you if you don 't agree we 're going to keep you at home uh, even with pay we 're going to keep you at home until this is resolved, and that would have prevented the death threats the protests the the international headlines uh, that have uh, Uh, that have uh, befallen uh, what is an excellent school and i was principal in that school for five years and i can tell you it's an excellent school with well-meaning people and good teachers and students who want to learn and all of this has been just a huge distraction and not a positive one i don't think
2: are you surprised larry that this is dragged out as long as it has it seems that the board just pushing this, this all down the field
7: well, I am surprised by that. Now, I've got to say, I, I'm not there, obviously, at the table, and I'm not listening to whatever the lawyers might be saying, and, and uh, I'm not privy to all of the conversations um, that the union uh, probably um, is involved in as well. So I'm, I'm simply saying, if I were there, what would I be uh, saying? What would I be doing? What, what are the pressures that I would want to try to mitigate and and one of them certainly is uh, around having this thing drag out now for months and months. Uh, that doesn't help anybody, including the person in question. I don't think who is was in sort of a limbo uh, awaiting whatever decisions are made. And then, you know, next steps will be taken. So, yeah, I'm a little surprised that it's it's uh, it's become so political. And by the way, I should say that it's a hot potato. Even yeah. the province, even even the minister of education, who said that yeah I want this solved, but didn't intervene, and they have ultimate jurisdiction uh, around what what can happen as well. So everybody's treating this very very gingerly when just some practical common sense is required. Again, which says you are working in a professional capacity, and nobody is allowed to come to the school. Um, uh, looking uh, as if, um, you know, it's a costume party. It just doesn't seem appropriate to me. Imagine if the tables were turned, Scott. Imagine if a male um, would would walk in with a prosthetic. And I don't want to get too graphic here, but just use yep. your imagination. If a, if a male walked in with a prosthetic that would be totally inappropriate, how long would that would be supported?
2: Good point. Larry DeAnne with us, former mayor of Hamilton and former principal of the school we're talking about. And uh, we'll wait to see what the, uh, the new policy is from the Halton District School Board. Larry, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. All right. Take care.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All
2: right, tomorrow, the uh, report regarding the use of the Emergencies Act, the inquiry, uh, drops tomorrow. In a recent piece for the National Post, direct, uh, litigation director for the Canadian Constitution Foundation wrote that there needs to be consequences for the use of the Emergencies Act last year during the Ottawa protests. Let's bring in Christine Van guyen litigation director for the Canadian Constitution Foundation. And with us now. Christine, thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
4: I'm good. How are
2: you, Scott? So far, so good. I'm thinking, Christine, that there's sort of two arguments coming out of this after the inquiry and all the dust settled. And that is, was there enough to meet the threshold of calling the Emergencies Act from a legal standpoint? From all intents and purposes, from what we understand, it's probably no. But then the other question is that in the court of public opinion, um, do people think that it was needed uh, after three weeks of letting the convoy, um, you know, settle up and, and set up camp there uh, due to a lack of leadership on the on governments or policing's part that this was needed to to clean it up are you worried that, the, that this is going to get lost in the sauce here uh,
4: well i think it will depend on what the report says but uh, but ultimately Our position is that the legal threshold was not met, right? That there was no national security threat, that CSIS said that there was no national security threat, that the RCMP said that all legal tools had not been exhausted, which is a part of what's required under this legislation. It's a tool of last resort. Uh, and, and we think that there should be serious political consequences. I know that people who lived in Ottawa and lived through it found it to be a very disruptive and frustrating experience. But we should not empower a government to use a law that's not actually available to them and then to use that law to enact unconstitutional regulations that, you know, froze people's bank accounts. This is a really historic piece of legislation, it's exceptional legislation that gives cabinet the ability to create new criminal law by executive order. That's something that needs to be tr- treated very carefully in a liberal democracy. So I look forward to what the report says tomorrow, uh, but you know that's not the end of the story because we also have an application for judicial review
2: so um the excuse or the the uh, justification that it was needed to clean up the mess that doesn't fly for you
4: no that's not even a part of the threshold the the threshold yeah. requires there to be a no but i mean in the threshold threat.
2: i i know what the legal threshold is but i'm talking also about the court of public opinion and what they you know no matter what uh, the report says they'll say well yeah after 3 weeks of mess we needed something you had to do that or, or do you
0: buy that
4: Absolutely not. It, we don't. We don't ju- base our government's leg- legality, the legality of government conduct, on whether people liked it or not. I mean, that's kind of how oppressive states act they ignore the rights of minority groups and and look i don't agree with a lot of what happened at the protest i think i would have been very frustrated if i was living in ottawa when that was happening but the reality is that there was no national security threat and that while they were disruptive the protests did not include rioting it did not include um any major property damage. It did not include any serious physical bodily harm to anybody. And for the government to use the most powerful legal tool to stop a protest that had been already been going on for quite some time, that's just not what that law exists for. It exists for terrorist hmm. attacks, not for protests
2: um what is the objective of the inquiry uh because many have said it's not about finding liability it's not about blaming somebody because after the inquiry don't we kind of already know what happened what's the objective here
4: I think the the objective it's it's first of all is required by legislation. So the legislation requires right. there to be an inquiry and for it to be concluded within a year plus a couple of days of um, the indication of the emergency. But uh, the the purpose, as you said, it's not to find liability, but it's to examine and assess the government's basis for invoking the uh, the act. And I think that it's open to the inquiry to answer the question about whether or not the legal threshold was met we will see if that i mean that's what the inquiry spent you know six weeks talking about so i really certainly hope that they do have a finding about that um however they can't make legally binding orders uh but the court the federal court can and we have a application for judicial review this is a separate procedure from the inquiry it's a court action or it's a court application and that court can have a finding um, and issue legally binding orders. So the outcome of this inquiry is not determinative of what happens in federal court, uh, but it, it certainly the inquiry was relevant. There was evidence from the from the inquiry that made it into the um, the record for the judicial review.
2: After we saw this all unfold in, in front of us with the inquiry and such, it did, it did really seem to point to a dysfunction within the city of Ottawa and their police department uh, and such. Do you think we'll come to any other conclusion here? Do you
4: think, and again, is this all in the wording, really? I mean, we, don't, we know there was dysfunction with all levels of police, but um, it resulted in the resignation of the Ottawa Chief of Police. It, I mean, we don't know for sure, but it's the, the commissioner of the RCMP resigned yesterday or the day before. Yeah. And I, I mean, we don't know what's in the inquiry report yet. It comes out tomorrow, but certainly, uh, the commissioner Lucky, commissioner Brenda Lucky did not come off very well in her testimony. So. I mean, you can draw your own conclusions about what that means, might be in the report, but I don't think the police came off very well um, and, and very collaborative in, in, the, in the inquiry. It seemed like there was a lot of dysfunction on the level levels.
2: Will the inquiry explain or point to a plan? Because many are, are not convinced if this happened again that we wouldn't end up in the same place. Uh, will there be anything about is there a plan in place so this does not happen again?
4: So one of the things that the inquiry did is following the six weeks of testimony uh, from the people who were directly involved, there was, there were these policy round tables. So it is open to the inquiry to um, issue recommendations, about reforms for the law. And in fact, they asked the parties to the inquiry about some of the, re- some, some reforms. So um, we included a, a number of suggested reforms uh, and, those may make it into the inquiry report as well it's it's about the threshold for when this law can be used and preventing it from being abused this was the successor to the war measures act which was abused and we it was designed not to be abused so we want to make sure that this never happens again
2: Uh want to make a prediction will anyone look bad at the end of this do you think or is it just well we've learned from our mistakes and so we're moving on
4: I I don't want to make any predictions. I want to see what the report says when I get it tomorrow. I'm very excited.
2: Christine Bankine with us, litigation director, Canadian Constitution Foundation. The uh, Emergencies Act Inquiry Report comes down tomorrow. Many anticipating what will be in it. Christine, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you.
1: You too. (laughs) Bye-bye.
0: thompson isn't satisfied with an answer
1: he'll delve into the issue until he is you're
0: listening to hamilton today with scott thompson on hamilton's news today's talk 900 chml
1: we
2: all remember uh the horrific shooting uh that happened in buffalo at a grocery store down there when a 19 year old neo-nazi shot and killed 10 people in a a racist massacre in buffalo new york he was sentenced uh to life in prison on yesterday i was watching some of this uh live footage of the sentencing it was just absolutely bizarre uh, to watch as you hear this poor family uh giving their victim impact statements and, and what they have gone through the hell they have gone through and this person virtually not reacting i mean some kid who's just just got the blank face and and nothing seems to be resonating it's just bizarre uh, to talk more about all of this let's bring in david nakamura reporter with the washington post and is with us now david thank you for your time hope you're doing well Hi Scott, thanks for having me on. So I'm watching the footage of this uh, yesterday, David, and I, I just couldn't get over just the blank stare on on this kid's face. It just seemed to be no remorse whatsoever.
8: Yeah, you said that very well. The families were extremely emotional, as anybody can imagine. There were tears, there was shouting. You know, folks saying they wanted to, to choke the the, the the defendant, and one man even rushed toward him, requiring officers to intervene. And and uh, the defendant, uh, Patrick. Uh, 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 to, to be, uh, to be let out of the courtroom there, uh, Patrick Endron. Um, but you know, what's interesting is that he later read a statement of, a uh, of apology that he had written and he had handcuffs on, so it was a bit of an awkward scene. Um, and he, he read it and, but, you know, it didn't seem very sincere to say the least. And, uh, hmm. the defense attorney, uh, the district attorney, I'm sorry, the district attorney said later, he believed that, uh, uh, he read that only because the federal trial is coming up and that could bring the death penalty. It was an idea that he's showing remorse to sort of escape the death penalty. The families, of course, also said they did not believe uh, he was sincere.
2: Uh, give us a uh, explain a little bit more about that, uh, because obviously we saw the sentencing yesterday, life in prison. Uh, now the federal charges, which could mean the death penalty. Uh, walk us through that.
8: Yes, it's very interesting. You know, the, the federal government announced uh, that through the Department of Justice just that the day of the shooting, last May that they had opened a, a hate crimes investigation. They brought a number of hate crimes and firearm charges that do bring uh, the potential for the death penalty, which you know is in contrast to New York State, which abolished the death penalty a number of years ago. Uh, Gendron was sentenced to a life in prison without the possibility of parole in the state murder case that ended yesterday, but today he was transferred to federal custody and appeared in federal court. And that uh, process will begin what's interesting is that merrick garland the attorney general has put in moratorium on executions there were 13 executions carried out by the federal government in the final months of the trump administration a record number hmm. in those final six months uh, so, so garland is saying hey wait we got to look at this he's he and president biden have expressed opposition in some ways to the parts of the death penalty or to how it's been carried out and uh, and and there's questions about where this is headed however uh, Garland has not made a decision yet in the case in Buffalo, and the federal government's still deliberating on, on which way they'll go on this. Uh, that could take a while longer, but uh, folks are really uh, trying to figure out, you know, which way uh, that could go.
2: Uh, Obviously, um, we we know the situation, uh, especially in the United States, with shootings and gun crimes. Whenever something like this happens, there's always call for this, that, and the other. Uh, And, and, you know, we've certainly seen many since what happened in Buffalo. Any of this resonating? Any of this making a difference as we embark on what could be a presidential campaign in the future? What is going to be a presidential campaign in the future?
8: I think that it's... It's been well said that, uh, or often said that, you know, if 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 the United States couldn't muster the political will to do anything uh, significant on gun control uh, after the shootings in in Newtown in in 2012, of course, where yeah. uh, you know two dozen uh, children or first graders were killed, you know, what could happen? I think that stands. However, I was talking with attorneys for these victims' families who said, even though uh, this sentence has now been delivered. Uh they are moving forward with potential lawsuits against gun manufacturers and social media websites. You know that uh, Patrick Enron said he was yeah. uh, uh you know uh, uh radicalized through social media uh particularly 4chan a website um and with extremist views and he had white supremacist views. And so whether you know these families lawsuits they're becoming more common now in mass shootings and other cases of gun violence and the idea that this could make a smaller difference. Uh New York also has taken some steps through uh some new laws about social media companies and Uh, steps by the attorney general there to talk about gun control to try to make some progress on some of these issues but obviously very strong split opinions in this country and and on a national level it's hard to see uh, any kind of movement even if this could come up here and there during the uh, the next two years.
2: What about when somebody live streams an event like this is there any is there any uh, repercussion for that?
8: I think you know that's the the question you know gun manufacturers have a, a uh, a lot of protections against, uh, you know, crimes committed with their weapons, you know, especially when they're uh, uh, obtained legally, uh, which in this case, it appears the, the weapons that uh, Gendron used were bought legally, for whatever that's worth. Um, but the questions about social media are still uh, something nebulous. I mean, they, these things are, are now being tested in courts about the, the role of social media and, and sort of moderating discussion groups. Um, there was a, a predecessor or a offshoot of 4chan called 8chan that was even more extreme, a website. Uh, that has since gone under, uh, but these websites, you know, these websites are saying, you know, look, we we provide a hosting site, and we're, you know, we're not responsible. We can't, you know, you know, look look at all the all the uh, commentary. I mean, even Twitter has, has has sort of been dealing with this um, and other other websites. So, it's not fully tested, but uh, you know, I think that the what what the attorneys for the victims are saying yesterday, and to me, uh, in the interviews I've done, is that, you know, they want to look at all the evidence in this case, uh, a lot of which they have not seen yet. Um, they're trying to get their hands on all the full investigation to see. You know, The DA even said that Gendron acted alone, but what does that really mean? How much did he share of his plans on these websites? He he did post a long manifesto that talked about the planning ahead of his shooting. Who read it? Who might have encouraged him? Are there others culpable, whether they're the website uh, operators themselves or, or others who are on the site and extremist groups who use them? So I think a lot of this is still to be
2: determined. David Nakamura with us, reporter for The Washington Post. David, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Sure, thanks, Scott. Appreciate it.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, of late we have
2: heard lots about uh, interference or potential interference or alleged interference uh, between the Chinese Communist Party and elections uh, in Canada, specifically making donations and such. Uh, Now we're hearing that uh, MPs want CSIS to help them understand more about this issue and spot foreign influence better. Let's bring in Marcus Kolga, Senior Fellow at the McDonnell-Laurie Institute Center for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad and founder of DisInfoWatch.org and with us now. Marcus, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. Thanks for having me on, Scott. So uh, is this up to the MPs? Is this up to government? Is this up to CSIS to make sure that everybody's on the same page and knows what everyone is doing?
9: Well, look, I, I think that uh, our government, along with CSIS uh, and other uh, federal institutions, does have a responsibility um, to make sure that uh, all of our members of Parliament are um, aware and have the sort of the cognitive resources to be able to, uh, de- de- to detect and sort of identify when um, these interference operations are targeting them, whether it's in the sort of information environments, you know, disinformation narratives, or when they're, they've uh, someone or some organization that is, Um, is acting on behalf of a a malign foreign government, an authoritarian government, you know, like China, Russia or Iran, uh, that they have the uh, capability to identify those people and those organizations. And that's not necessarily up to the MP, but, um, but the government should be coming up with policies to enable those MPs to be able to do that, and and right now it's really just a free for all. Any organization um, doesn't matter where they're coming from can essentially um, advance those foreign interests. So yeah, we need to do a, a little bit of a better job to help out these MPs. And I would argue as well our media uh, and other democratic institutions at all levels of government to uh, to protect them from uh, being manipulated by foreign interference.
2: Um how do you keep track of somebody who's making a donation if if someone's just uh, making a donation to a candidate and such is it a case of following up the background information that is that is supplied uh, is more required how do you how do you wade through this
9: Well look it's not just even those election donations you know we have some pretty robust uh, laws that control that. Um, CSIS, of course, does have more information about that. And we really should be making sure that we track some of those donations. Um, it's also just, uh, you know, having organizations um, try to uh, manipulate the understanding of MPs and, uh, you know, their understanding of, um, you know, whether it's geopolitics or maybe, you know, there's lobbying or advocacy for them to change their position on a specific policy. Um, Right now, there are no safeguards. Um, There's one uh, new piece of legislation that is being pretty uh, frequently discussed in Ottawa nowadays, and that's a a Foreign Influence Registry Act. Uh, The U.S. has passed and had this legislation for decades already. Um, Australia recently passed similar legislation and what this legislation would do. It doesn't target any specific ethnic group, but it uh, ensures that there is transparency and accountability when it comes to this sort of advocacy. So those individuals or organizations uh, that are acting on behalf of foreign governments or corporations that are linked to foreign governments, you know, Huawei is a perfect example of one of those. Mm. If you have someone that is uh, trying to advocate or lobby on their behalf that that uh, connection to that foreign government is very clear that those individuals need to register with the for, with the uh, federal government. And that listing would be available so that if they wanted to meet with a with federal MP, the federal MP staff would realize uh, through this registry who that individual is representing. So that's just a basic level of understanding that we need to start um, – implementing that of uh, the foreign influence registry act but there's a lot more as far as you know you know regular briefings are concerned um right now mps are not getting any of that help right now
2: uh, are you surprised that the mps are asking CES for this help because it seems they um, the government is not The you know Huawei was a perfect example that you brought up are, are they asking for more info than than what the government is
9: well, listen, it's not just uh, opposition MPs that are asking for this. It's uh, government MPs as well that are, that yeah. are asking for this. Uh, so, I mean, I think that's a real sign of the desperation that MPs have. You know, I don't think any MP is interested in getting caught up or, you know, um, changing their position on a piece of policy because of some sort of foreign manipulation. They also want to be protected. Um, So if MPs are asking for this, you know, it's really it's high time that the government uh, act on this and make sure that we protect our democracy um, from this sort of interference.
2: How difficult is this in the end? How difficult is it to stop, identify or even educate?
9: Uh, Well, look, it's a a big task. Um, But uh, if we put our. Uh, our minds to it, if we put resources into it, it's not that difficult. As I mentioned, this uh, Foreign Influence Registry Act, it's been passed in a number of uh, allied countries. Um, wow. We can follow their example. We can do this fairly quickly, I would say within a year. Um, and uh, we can talk to those organizations, civil society organizations, like my own, DisinfoWatch, um, who have been keeping an eye on uh, foreign influence already for a number of years. You know, having people like, people like DisinfoWatch, uh, CSIS, other civil society organizations come in and regularly brief our members of parliament is not that hard to do. They just, you know, it needs a bit of resources and they, these organizations just need to be asked to do that. We're there for that, um, but the government needs to ask us to do it.
2: Marcus Kolga with us, Senior Fellow, Macdonald Laurie Institute, Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad, and founder of DisinfoWatch.org, talking about understanding uh, and spotting foreign interference in Canadian elections. Marcus, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you for having me on, Scott. As we heard earlier on today, I lost the bet. Uh, John Tory is resigning as of Friday after the budget uh, stuff is over and done with. Many were thinking that he might stay on or uh, run again and such. Uh, to sum up this story and what's been a very busy few days, uh, Matt Bingley's with a city hall reporter with Global News. He is with us now. Matt, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well.
10: Doing well. A little tired and don't feel bad. A lot of people lost that bet because uh, really it was anybody's guess the way how things were (laughs) were really going up into the wire there.
2: So uh, first of all, how long were you there last night and and, and how did all that transpire before we get to today?
10: Sure. Yeah. I I was here until just after midnight at City Hall Uh, Council. It, it, I'm, I'm sure you probably saw some of the, the visuals. It was a wild day. It took them. It, it was going to be a very long meeting to begin with, and every time they seemed to start, uh, protesters got involved and shut down the meeting. Everybody got kicked out multiple times. So the whole thing didn't actually start until uh, well after 2 o'clock. The meeting itself finished around ten fifteen, and then, you know, we were... Uh, really just sort of hanging out outside of the mayor's office because we had heard that there might be a bit of a development, uh, especially after by his... His own timeline, Mayor Tory had said that he would be releasing some more information on a timeline for the transition of power after that budget process was over. Well, he didn't use his veto powers last night. That officially ended the budget process, so there we were camped out Uh, just after about ten. Thirty or so, uh, one of his senior staff members came out with uh, a stack of flyers uh, and handed them out. News releases that indicated that uh, Mayor Tory had in fact turned uh, in his resignation officially this time.
2: Now, were uh, did was there gasps when that happened? Because again, I mean, you're not really surprised at anything, I guess you hear at this point. But were you surprised to to hear that that was the direction he was going in at that time?
10: I. Yes and no. Yes, in the way that uh, you know it was just such a long day; it was sort of drawn out. No, in the sense that, uh, uh, that that I had had a little bit of a tip that this was going to happen, so you know I was anticipating it. But there was at least one reporter who, uh, as he was getting this sheet of paper, I think he probably thought it may have been a backgrounder on. On what had happened with the budget, and I just heard him go, "Oh," and, and sort of realized <laughs> what it was as uh, as it sort of processed through. And uh, not long after that, we uh, waited for a bit longer, and uh, after eleven at some point, I think uh, at this point my my memory is a little fuzzy over, over timing, but uh, but Mayor Tory left. He didn't have much to say. Uh, asked him on his way if uh, if he sort of cared to make a comment, and he said no. He'll have. Uh, much more to say in in the meantime
2: uh I, there was lots of concern over the use of the strong power the mayor's strong powers uh, act and 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 uh, using that during this process but you're you were saying this was not needed at all
10: yeah not not at all uh there was a, a quite the, the consensus when it came to the remainder of the money uh you know the city's budget chief had been looking through for a lot of those sort of savings and the missed money that uh, that you often hear about during a budget process they found uh, around seven million dollars and before well before this meeting actually began a lot of these counselors came together and sort of built this consensus motion which added a bit of money to a number of different items there was uh, about eight hundred thousand dollars to to keep one of these 24-7 warming centers open uh, for for, uh, until about the middle the of April. There was some more money for a pilot project on uh, TTC uh, uh, mental health uh, uh, sort of support for people who are experiencing homelessness. So there was a lot in there. Uh, You know, there were some counselors that threw up some roadblocks, but they were motions where as you were watching it, especially throughout the course of the day, and if you sort of keep an eye on council, you knew that they were going to fail. So uh, Tory at the end just stood up and said, you know, I'm going to waive my time period for this veto power. And then that ends the budget process. And, and, you know, for a lot of the people watching it the first time, reporters included, we sort of went, oh, okay, so this is how it's going to work from now on, uh, but just not with the same person.
2: Wow. Uh, so what is next, Matt? Um, does the circus return or have, has city council learned something from this process? What do you anticipate moving forward?
10: Uh, In in the short term, we will see uh, Deputy Mayor Jennifer McKelvey take over the reins after 5 o'clock. She will be the interim mayor. Uh, She has said that she is not going to run in the by-election. And really the timing of that by-election itself is kind of up in the air. There's this whole process of the way that they lay it out. But, you know, it could happen uh, as late as the fall, just the way that this all uh, lines up, because there's a nomination period they have to get through, and then there, uh, once that closes, which could be as long as 60 days past uh, the end of uh, of March when this bylaw first passes, uh, that uh, that we will see uh, a by-election 45 days after that. So it's hmm. it's going to be quite. The time as we, I anticipate we're going to hear a lot of names thrown around, uh, whether they run or whether they don't. Uh, you know, it will be much like uh, what we experienced, whether will he resign or won't he resign. So it's uh, come full circle in a sense.
2: Yeah, there's really uh, two camps here. It's the people that you would assume that were going to run, and then there's other people that are on the fringes that you, oh, maybe they're going to run. You have no idea who who they are. Um, is there a candidate that, if they ran against John Tory, would have given him a run for his money? Is there somebody that strong?
10: Yeah, it's that's a hard question um, because you know we just did not see anybody materialize. Uh, Mike Layden could have been someone, but uh, that that is a name that is rumored to be out there. Uh, he was a long-time city councillor and uh, somebody on the progressive side. He would have given Tory a run for his money, uh, but obviously um, chose not to throw his hat in the ring when Tory was still a contender. Uh, Anna is was a, a very close supporter of Tory. She's another name that's out there. Again, someone who could have uh, given him a run for his money, and, and also Brad Bradford, who's current councillor and is uh, sort of rising through the ranks. He is also someone uh, that we're hearing a lot and has not ruled... Out, uh, out a run yet? Uh, it's you know, hypotheticals are a strange thing when, especially when you think about just how effective of a machine uh, Tory had when it came to campaigning. So, uh, the thing that I'm really interested in seeing is whether we will actually see the the kind of campaign similar to his that we saw in Jennifer Key's map back in 2018 that we did not see in the, the 2022 election. It just did not exist. So uh, we may, may see a lot more money thrown around through uh, other campaigns than we, than we did uh, in this past fall, because really, Tory was the only one spending the big
2: bucks. Are you surprised at the exposure the attention that this got I mean there was provincial politicians commenting federal politicians commenting on this are you surprised that that everybody had an opinion
10: I you know no actually just you know it, it is the the city's or sorry the the country's biggest city mm-hmm. uh, it has a lot of power especially when uh it comes to the way that tory dealt with uh provincial leaders federal leaders he was very well known and then also just the mere fact of of who he was and his reputation in politics uh it just came as such a shock so obviously uh Everybody's going to have an opinion, uh, especially when it's somebody so, so high profile. I was at the, the Raptors training facility uh, last week for the trade deadline. There's a picture of Tory in their hallway watching in, uh, in uh, Jurassic Park during their playoff run. He, he was <laughs> wow. just everywhere. So uh, it, it's not surprising that uh, everyone would be talking about it.
2: Matt Bingley with us, City Hall reporter with Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News for the latest on all of this as the John Tory story winds down, hopefully. Matt, thanks for the time. Get some sleep.
0: My pleasure. I will. (laughs) Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: Scott Radley joining us, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. And his uh, latest column there, a dark first Ontario center is going to be costly. A report says downtown arena generates $30 million a year in economic activity, meaning two or more years without events is going to hurt. Scott Radley with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. hope you're well. I am well. How are you? I'm doing very well. You bring up a very valuable valid point in your uh, column here we've talked about the team we've talked about the renovations um, but again we forget that there were three tenants here that constantly brought a consistent uh, audience downtown what happens to those places that uh, relied on this center to to bring in customers uh, it's a valid point
11: well one of the funny things that I heard today from people when uh, when they were reading it was well what do you mean what businesses are there down next to cops calls yeah here at first Ontario Centre being. And, and, you know, there is, sadly, there is some truth to that, that right around in the immediate vicinity, there's not a ton. However. Well, I'm thinking uh, hospitality restaurants. So, yes. So, uh, that's, your your point is exactly right. So, that's, people are overlooking the the vicinity of First Ontario Centre does not necessarily mean it has to be visible or right next door. All those restaurants downtown that people might come to, every parking lot, Every hotel that somebody might come to, any taxi company that people might take to get there. You can go on and on and on, and all the spin off things. Plus, somebody wrote me an email today and said, You know, I work at the arena, I'm going to be out of work for two years, potentially now. So there's employees who now, uh, you know, there's all kinds of things that we don't even think of. We simply think, oh, people buy a ticket and they go to an event, but there's other things. And yes, it will be hard on a lot of groups downtown. And when you consider what they've just gone through, think of the restaurants, just let's just take restaurants. You've just gone through COVID for, Well, for, you know, I know they've been back for a while, but for what, a year and a half, two years where they essentially couldn't really do anything. And now you're going to do this and you're knocking down the Eaton's center, the city center thing there. And then you're going to have LRT construction. If I am a person who has a business downtown, I'm worried. I'm worried. And the question is, what could the city do about it? And in the piece that I write, and you know, uh, John Paul Danko, Ward uh, 8 Councilor, and Brad Clark, Ward 9 Councilor, they bring up a very valid point. We can't hand out checks to the businesses even if we feel sympathy for them because if we do that, every time the city digs up a street for road reconstruction and there's a business on that street and it affects their business, do we have to write a check? We can't afford that. Taxpayers can't afford that. So if you're a downtown business, I guess the answer is right now you've got to grit your teeth, you've got to hold on by your fingernails again, and then you have to hope that when this thing is done and it looks great, if, it, you know, if everything that is supposed to happen happens and this is a fantastic new facility and concerts just by the bushel full start
2: coming in there, that you can recoup the losses very quickly. You know, and you bring up a valid point and and something that takes as long as, say, the pandemic, this reno, roughly the same time, you have to wonder how that footprint around that precinct, around that block is going to change in the next two, three years.
11: Well, um, I mean, okay, so the, the utopian viewpoint, uh, if you want to see what the utopian viewpoint is, you look at London, uh, Ontario, and what, is, what was the John Labatt Centre, was now Budweiser Gardens, I believe it's still called Budweiser Gardens, mm-hmm. I don't think it's changed its name. Once upon a time, there wasn't much down there. It became a very, very, very busy arena. I think at one time it might have been the second busiest arena in North America. And you go downtown London now around that arena, and there's one or two complete rings around that arena blocks of bars and restaurants and stores that are all doing well because you've got something going on basically almost every night. Yeah. That's what I think ideally, that's what you would hope somehow could happen here, that this renovation is so successful and becomes such a great fallback place for groups that can't get into Toronto for music, that they all start to come here, Mm -hmm. that we start having 250 nights a year where that arena is going solid, and then you get things popping up and building around it. But- Remember, that arena has now been there for 36, 37
2: years, and it hasn't happened yet. Mm -hmm. Scott Radley with us Host of the Scott Radley Show You can read the column In the Hamilton Spectator He's coming up next After the 6 o'clock news Have a great show Scott Thanks for the time Thank you
0: Thanks for listening To the Hamilton Today Podcast You can listen to the show live Weekday afternoons From 3 to 6 On 900 CHML And online at 900CHML.com
2: That's it for us Thanks for listening As always We leave it to you The taxpaying customer To have the last word I didn't actually get one So I guess the uh Uh, the last word here is keep right except to pass.